0: there's a link in the show notes, or if you're an Instagram user, just message me three steps. That's the number three S T E P S, and I'll send you that link. Let today be the day you get started.
1: Throw in a zinger color that you don't normally work with because you never know that how that surprise is going to add, you know, a sparkle your quilts.
0: Welcome to Measure Twice, Cut Once, the podcast where we hear quilters and other crafters' stories and draw encouragement and even life lessons from them. I'm your host, Susan Smith, coming to you from my quilting studio, Stitched by Susan. This is where my long arm, Lucy, and I spend lots of hours doing freehand, edge-to-edge quilting. And if you're not a quilter and those terms mean nothing to you, it's basically doodling on the surface of a quilt with a 50-pound writing utensil with needle and thread attached at high speed. And if you are a machine quilter, I invite you to tune in to the live and unscripted events hosted on my YouTube channel, Stitched by Susan. They're streamed live, and so they're interactive, meaning you can ask questions and get answers about a project while I'm working on it. Also, I have something brand new available to machine quilters, and that is a mini course on quilting the all-over feather. I feel like quilted feathers are always eye-catching and the all-over meandering type of feather is no exception. So in this free mini class, I'll show you how to achieve the graceful flowing feathers that you've always aspired to. So I'll take you right from the basic feather shape, through even coverage on the quilt top, to avoiding awkward corners, talking about customizing the little details, it's all here and I'll walk you through it and demonstrate the quilting of it step by baby step. So to find that class, just go to my website, stitchedbysusan.com, and you will very shortly get a pop-up with a little sign-up sheet for that class. It's completely free and it's pretty short. But if feathers have always perplexed you, I encourage you, give it a try. I break it down into the smallest, most manageable steps imaginable. So once again, that is quilting the all-over feather. Well, today, joining me in the podcast, we're inviting Michelle Crawford to tell us her story. Today's Pins and Needles is brought to you by The Will and Dave Show. Hi, I'm the Will half of The Will and Dave Show, a short little podcast that myself and the eponymous Dave, like to record talking about the things that really matter to us, whether that's social, political, or pop culture. Usually we don't see eye to eye, but more often than not, we can find some common ground in there somewhere. And now, back to pins and needles with a quick tip for all you sharp quilters out there. My tip for you today is a small but mighty one. So my guest Michelle talks at one point about Color value in quilts particularly when you're working with scraps or a large variety of fabrics and what makes a quilt sparkle or not um, have movement or not has to do with the values the boldness the saturation of colors that are used in your quilt so an easy way to kind of review those and see what the impact is is to snap a photo with your smartphone in black and white And it will become very evident in black and white pictures which colors are the most bold, which are going to draw your eye, and if you need to rearrange some of those fabric colors or pieces. So that's today's tip. Use your smartphone, snap a photo in black and white, and use that to assess your color values. You all know by now how much I love my morning coffee. Well, if you're interested in supporting this podcast, It's as simple as going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash stitched by Susan. There, for the price of one delicious coffee, you're able to make a one-time contribution toward the production of this show. Thank you so very much for your support. And maybe take a moment now to refill your cup as you settle back to enjoy today's interview. My guest today is Michelle Crawford. She is a quilter and crafter with an impressive resume, different crafts, lots of years of experience. She has been involved in many areas of the quilting industry, from um, contributing to magazines and designing patterns, to advertise fabric lines, to cross-stitch and crocheting, and even embroidery, hand embroidery. So Michelle has just a wealth of experience and stories to share with us today. Welcome, Michelle, into my studio. Thanks for joining me
1: today. Thanks for having me. It's going to be fun. It absolutely is.
0: I'm so looking forward to hearing your stories because I know you have a wealth of them. But let's maybe start at the crafty beginning. I was reading in your About page about your first business. Tell us more about that.
1: Well, I have been crafting since I was nine and pretty much self-taught. Always a needle or a thread, or something in my hand, and my first business was making woven pot holders. And I used to walk around our neighborhood. Um, we had a dead end street of about twenty houses, and I would walk around and sell them. So, and how and old were you doing that? About nine. Yeah. About nine, and then it was fun when I taught my my grandchildren how to weave um, pot holders, also, and so they made them for presents for other family members. So it was kind of like a go around, come around, the circle kind of, of
0: life in a different way.
1: <laughs> One of the things that I did was um, my mom was my mom and dad were a lot older. I have a brother who's thirteen years older than sorry, eleven years older than I am. And at that point, I also had older grandparents. And way back in the 60s, I used to be in the lobby or the waiting room of the hospital while my mom and my aunt went up to visit our sick relatives. And I used to take crafts with me to to occupy my time. So that's when I also started knitting, crocheting embroidery stamped embroidery um things like that so it's been a long time the first time I uh, sewed I think it was about 11 on a sewing machine my grandmother's featherweight and I I don't I can't even tell you I know I was self-taught because my mother doesn't sew my grandmother did but I just started making doll clothes and things like that and eventually when i got into junior high school seventh grade we had to take home economics everyone had to take home economics a semester of cooking and a semester of sewing for girls boys Mm -hmm. had to take industrial arts (laughs) um anyways i really really got more of the clothing construction skills at that point and then took sewing in seventh eighth and ninth grade and at one point I was taking different patterns, sewing clothes patterns, and combining them and making my own clothes. And thought at that point I wanted to be a a fashion designer and wanted to go to New York. And I ended up wanting to be a teacher later on in high school and eventually went to Miami University in Ohio And I have a degree in education. I met my husband the first day, the night before the first day of classes in 1972. And the first quilt I ever made was for him. And this was back in the days in the seventies where fabric was 36 inches wide. And there wasn't as much inventory or prints or whatever. So, um, I made him a, a red, white, and blue gingham quilt for his bed in his fraternity house. I and I do it. it. I do have a picture of it with me sitting on it at age 19. Anyways, that was my first quilt. And so I just did clothing construction through um, college. We got married, and I was teaching elementary school and still sewing. I was then introducing counted cross-stitch. Wool embroidery. I've done needlepoint, um, pretty much anything with a needle and thread. I have not done tr- um, tatting, or I hadn't done chicken scratch at that point, which is another form of cross stitch. Yeah, Anyways. I was going to
0: say, what what is chicken scratch? I'm chicken scratch. I'm ignorant of this.
1: Okay, chicken scratch is something that you do X's and different embroidery stitches on gingham fabric. So you're okay. actually using, and so there's, um, you can make stars and X's and plus signs and things like that, but it's done on gingham. So You've you'll have to look it up. I do have a class in it because it is a, a different way to use your hand sewing skills. Kind of interesting. Anyways. Um, I, I ended up teaching four years, and at the end of four years, um, I had my first son. I have four children. And at that point, I didn't want to go back into teaching, so I decided that I was going to start uh, a craft business, and it was called the Stork Port. We lived in Huron. Ohio on Lake Erie. So that's where the stork and the port and Mm -hmm. we had a boat at that at that point. And so I started making items for babies, obviously the stork part and bibs and signs and mini quilts and decorative things for the wall and then sold them at local craft shows. So that's what kept me home starting in 1980 with a baby and was my very first Business. Um, doing craft shows is a whole different business of making 10 of this and 20 of that. And it's um, interesting. And then my, that was my first round of selling to the public. And so I did that for about three years. And I, just like with quilt shows, you start at the smaller shows and you gradually get into the um, the different shows where you have to send in um, items to be juried Along came Kevin and David, and obviously I couldn't do very much as far as uh, selling crafts, but I still did a lot of sewing. And people are always amazed that I always had a basket of sewing on the table next to me, and people were always amazed that I could still sew while I had children. So I always did like smaller projects, a lot of counted cross stitch because you could pick it up and put it down. Anyways a year after the twins were born, I was pregnant again and I had another baby. They're 12 months and three weeks apart. And that's when my daughter was born. And we eventually moved to um, uh, Spokane in 1986. Four kids, a dog and my husband and I from Ohio, didn't know anybody. And so I was pretty busy with all the kids, but wanted to get my feelers out into Spokane. So I went to the Quilting Bee on Dishman Micah, and lo and behold, that's how I got to meet Debbie Mum, who's very famous in the quilting world. Anyways, I was encouraged by the people in the store to start designing my own patterns. It was a whole side that I had never heard of before. Instead of making 10 of this and 20 of that, you only had to design one project, write the instructions, and then sell it. I thought, that sounds great. So then came my second business called Cross and Quilt, and so I decided to to design projects combining cross stitch and quilting. And so that was um, uh, 1987, 1988. Um, my mom died. I inherited some money. And I decided to branch out with my business. I went to Houston Quilt Market at that point. Mm -hmm. Oh, Susan, if you could have seen Quilt Market in 1988. Quite a difference. Okay, so here's the
0: thing, Michelle. I've never been to Quilt Market in any year so far. Oh,
1: you kidding. Oh, my gosh. I know. This was when I think of going there. And I also did a crusted show in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that was for um, uh, needlework. Anyways, for me... I had never done anything like this before. I walked in with big suitcases of patterns, trying to sell patterns. I still have, I still have a hand typed on erasable typing paper of the letter that I sent to Carrie Brezenhan who's started Quilts Inc. Um, telling her all about my work and that I wanted to be a vendor. I mean, I have saved that for posterity because it's so hysterical that um, I can't believe I did that, but I did. So anyways, so I started um, buying ads and magazines to promote my patterns across the country after being at the show. And of course, you're sending out money for ads, but the money isn't coming in. And so I got pretty frustrated. And again, this is all things I had never done before. And back then, as... You may not know, this was before websites, the internet, 800 numbers, emails, everything. There was nothing. You had long-distance phone calls that you paid for by the minute, which sounds funny because I used to get up, because being in Spokane, I'm three hours behind New York where most of the fabric companies are. So I used to have to get up really early in the morning, like, by four or five, so that it would be their time and I could get mm-hmm. cheaper long distance rates. And you actually had to call an operator or receptionist to ask for the name of the person, the creative sewing person, the marketing director, the creative director, the head of the fabric department, whatever. It was quite so different. You, so
0: you really had to be a sleuth because you couldn't just scroll to the bottom of the website like we do now for oh. contact us button.
1: No. No, right. we're talking landlines and fax machines mm-hmm. and things like that. oh that was even before fax machines. That was another story. Then I decided I was going to go to a seminar called the for the Society of Craft Designers and it was in Portland and I was going there in 1989 to find out the flip side of selling my own patterns. And again, this was something I'd never done before and found the group of people who were, there were manufacturers and designers and publishers and editors that were together to connect. So I found out the flip side of designing for magazines. So my first design for magazines came out in 1989 in a magazine called Country Handcrafts. And I just loved it because you could you could draw, I mean, we're talking hand-drawn pencil, colored pencils, whatever, ideas, and submitting them for magazine submissions. And that's what I started doing in 1989. So I claim this, my professional career is June 15th, 1989. And so it's been 32 years since then that I have been a professional cult designer. Anyways, I came home and just started submitting to magazines. And at that point, there were lots and lots of different magazines. Some of them were still being printed on manila type paper. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of the basics of quilting at that point. Again, this was really, there were printed patterns that you cut out. And way back when, with quilting, we didn't have rotary cutters to start with. And we used cereal boxes, margarine lids, and even sandpaper to make templates from. So they all had to be meticulously hand-drawn and carefully cut out to be able to use.
0: And the more meticulous you were, the better result you got.
1: Right. Absolutely. And there were no computer-type machines or anything like that. It, it sounds so um, kind of we, uh, we've come a long way. let's say, let's say that we've I come was thinking a long that
0: way. exact phrase. We have come yes. a long way.
1: And so, um, I decided that this is what I wanted to do before i before I actually got into the other part of the story is before I actually went to this seminar and I was still selling making ads and selling some patterns, I had to make the decision. We needed money in our household, and I was home with my four kids, I didn't want to go back to substitute teaching because I didn't want to have to have daycare for four kids. I decided I was either going to have to go back to school to get to renew my teaching degree for the state of Washington, or I was going to have to find a part-time job. So this is a really embarrassing story because I I mean, you know, you got to do stuff for your family. So anyways, what was I going to do when my husband could watch the kids, and I could still be close to home. So I ended up taking – this is really embarrassing. I ended up taking a job at Albertsons. And, Susan, you'll know, you know the the Ace Hardware on Regal Street Mm -hmm. in Spokane? That used to be in Albertsons. So it's, like, less than five minutes from my house.
0: And Albertsons is a grocery store.
1: Yeah, Albertsons is a grocery store. And I took a job – um, frying donuts. And I had to be there at 3.30 in the morning so I could get up. Tom was asleep. The kids were asleep. And I was done at 7.30. And then I would go home and we would switch. Tom would leave and I would be there to help the kids get ready for you know the day in school. So I was doing that until I went to that seminar in Portland. And it was like, I'm better than this. Well, I we
0: hope cool. you at least had the perk of fresh donuts to have with your morning coffee.
1: No, you were so sick of them. Donuts, that's the worst. <laughs> it's just I, I can't even eat a donut anymore. So, anyways, but you do what you got to do. So, I went to the seminar, and that's when I decided I was going to be a quilt designer. So, So, jump ahead,
0: jump ahead like crazy for our listeners and tell them how many different patterns you've designed.
1: I today. actually, and I've counted each and every one of them. So, if there was a set like five. Ornaments—they're all counted individually. I've had over forty-five hundred designs published in magazines, and websites, and free pattern sheets. I've worked for thirty-five different fabric companies. I work directly with, um, you know, creative directors. I would get—I um, would bounce ideas off people because my job ended up being doing editorial quilts. For magazines. So we were using fabrics that the companies obviously wanted to sell to the consumer. And so at that point, so 1989 to about 2000, 2001, the fabrics were printed ahead of time and then the manufacturers would sell the fabric. So what would happen is I would get fabrics for, um, I can remember this as far as a fall fabric. And so, when you are doing publishing parts, it, the time frame can be anywhere from six to eighteen months that you are working within. And so, I had something like, we'll say, in October to work on for the next October, and of course, the fabric was, you know, out of print by the time it came in the magazine. And at that point, it was the editor that fielded all the the customer comments, and so at that point. Um, The manufacturers started doing digital images, so this was about two thousand one and two, and so at that point it was great because I could work with digital images and a computer. I mean, this was all very, very new back then, and you could just and I use electric quilt, and you could um, you could design. Projects bef- with the fabric samples as digital images before the fabric was even printed, so we had to work with collections that the co- the company would say this is come this is the uh, April May issue and this is the collection that's going to come out at that time in the stores and this is the one you know you're going to be working with. So there were lots of times when I worked with collections and colors and prints that. Uh, made me stretch myself as a designer because I had to my I had to promote the collection to the best of my ability. And so it's a different way of thinking as designing. It's a job. It's what you love to do, but it's not what you're doing personally for yourself or for your home or whatever. Your job is advertorial.
0: And not and necessarily so, your personal taste or choices or aesthetic either.
1: Right. And I learned a lot. I I learned a lot from especially um, the creative director from a variety of different companies. I also found out that the majority of the people that I worked with at the fabric companies didn't know how to sew. And so that was interesting to me because I remember collection from a company where um, the fabric designer had gone to uh, Michigan, the upper part of Michigan, and came back with these ideas on using deer and all kinds of natural stuff. And she was talking, you know, I'd say, all right, what do you see? What kind of quilt do you want? You know, what is it? And she was expecting me to do things that I said, "Um, this is not going to happen mathematically. And I said, do you, you know, she goes, I don't sew? So I don't know. I just design fabric. So that was kind of interesting to me to find out that they really didn't have a clue as to what I was doing, although they were selling fabric. So I think it's, you know, it became an eye for color and um, what is aesthetically pleasing to you. And so I also worked for um, Fairfield and Warm and Natural. I worked for Coates & Clark. I actually had a budget line. I had X amount of dollars a year to spend on on doing projects for magazines. So instead of the editor of the magazine paying me, which was, I hate to say piddly, people might think that, you know, oh, you're in a magazine, you're going to make tons of money. Nah, I don't think it's any different now than it was before. But by having a backing of a company and a budget then I could make more money. You could also do endorsements. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't using Nike shoes and getting big bucks at that point, like Michael Jordan. But every time you used a product that possibly had an endorsement fee, and I only used products that I really loved and actually used. If you put them in the magazine, then you would get a small stipend. So that was a great way to make extra money. And during all these points in time when I was designing, I didn't—I designed everything, but I didn't make everything. It got to the point where I, in order to make things work financially and for what I needed for my family, um, I had to hire some other people to help me sew. And that was a whole other story in itself. These quilts didn't come back to me. They went to the manufacturer. And then they used them in their trade shows all over the And, of course, the, the manufacturer
0: the wants them to represent their fabric well. Absolutely. That it needs to look sharp.
1: Can I it go needs- back a
0: little minute? Sure. You were talking earlier about the period of time where manufacturers were printing all the fabrics in advance and then going about the work of designing patterns and selling. At what point did that kind of switch over to what's more common now? And that is that manufacturers advertise, they take pre-orders and pre-sell and then they go and print. And how has that kind of changed uh, the industry from your point of view?
1: I'm thinking it was around 2002 that it affected me because at that point by using fabrics that were um, digital, um, then we could, or I could order fabric ahead of time to offer kits in the magazines when they came out. And at that point, 2002, that was something brand new, mm-hmm. um, again, before websites and all of this in the stores and the internet. So that was, that was a blessing. But a lot of people at that, I mean, it's come so far as far as what the digital images look like. And it um, it was an interesting time because a shop owner could go to, let's say, quilt market and they would be shown printed digital images. And they, at, let's say in three color ways. And the salespeople would pitch these Designs, and you might say, I love this collection, but I love it in blue. I don't like it in green or pink. So they would kind of do a tally of what colors were selling best. And then those are the ones they would print. So you might have loved something in pink, but it only came out in blue. And so that was a different way because the fabric companies, as much as they want to sell fabric to you, the consumer, it is a business. They're there to make money as much as they love, you know, fabric and colors and and quilters and sewers and everything, which is the other which is the other side of the, the niche of being a professional designer. You're in it to make money, and so it just you're just lucky to be able to do something that you love with the talents that you have. Mm-hmm. So I hope does that explain. It it does. And it just gives me an an
0: added viewpoint of how you approach design. Like you want to design things you love. Of course you do. But you also have to consider what are the colors that are popular this year? What type of piecing is popular this year? Is handwork popular? Or is that just a, a dead end street? You know, and all those things have to be considered when you're designing with the consumer in mind.
1: Absolutely. The quilting... Um, for magazine submissions is entirely different than personal work, because it is the fabric that has to shine first in the collection when you're working for the manufacturer. So the setting, the blocks, and the whole quilt has to showcase the fabric collection. And so the quilting is more of like the cherry on the top. It can't, overwhelm the entire the entire quilt. It's just there to add a little pizzazz to it. Because mm-hmm. a supporting role. Paying... Yeah. Yes. So that was, you know, that's again, that's completely different a completely different kind of quilting for business as opposed to personal. Right. So I have a question.
0: In your submitting to magazines, I know that you've submitted to many all over the U.S. Have you appeared in other countries, and are there differences, if so?
1: That's a very good question. And no, I have not submitted to other magazines outside of the United States. Okay.
0: Can we do a tiny synopsis? So say we have some listeners who are interested in making submissions into crafting magazines and not okay. just quilting. What would a few of those kind of basic steps be? Like what type of person or position are you contacting? What might you need to look for in terms of contract or in, in terms of uh, maintaining or reverting the copyright back to you?
1: Good, Great questions. Okay. The first thing is you need to buy a copy of the magazine you want to be in. And I would look at a variety of months to see what their emphasis is. What are they looking for? You don't want to, if they're more traditional, you don't want to possibly submit something that's more modern because it won't fit in with their audience. But on the other hand, if that's what the editor wants, then that, you know, then go ahead. So what I would do is to look at the the, um, magazines. I would check their website See what their submissions are. I think the majority of them will have them online. And again, I haven't done it for a while. But I would think, I mean, I know publishing, book publishing companies have their specs online. I would look and read those carefully over and they sometimes have a sample contract and what they're looking for. And then I would check the website to see who it is that I contact. If you get um, uh, info at acmefabrics.com and that's all they have, then I say go with that. Cross your fingers. Make sure you put your phone number and your and, email And maybe address. your question
0: for them is, who should I reach out to if I want to submit something yes. to your magazine, right? Yes. Send me to the right and person.
1: Then, absolutely. You want to get to the right person. And sometimes it's um, a challenge to have to go through a lot of different steps in order to get to the right person. So I would talk to them and now you can, if they like, you can FaceTime them. I would make sure you send them a resume of all the things that you've done. I would ask them what their submission uh, requirements are. If it's not on their website, do they, how far ahead do they want submissions? I mean, yes, we think that no, uh, that, okay, it's September now, let's see, the November, December issue should be out, so you must be looking for Christmas. And so it's not, because every magazine is different as far as how far out they're working. So make sure you get some kind of a schedule on the submissions that they're working on. One of the things is, I know I've seen on chat rooms where people say, well, I'm just going to make this quilt and I'm going to submit it to them. So you've already got it done. I don't think a lot of people a lot of magazines work that way, um, but you can certainly try um, otherwise I would ask them what it is that you're looking for. Are you looking for um, a table runner? Are you looking for a wall hanging? Are you looking for pillows? Do you, can you add um, embellishments? Does it have to what's the degree of difficulty? Uh, for the skill level of your readers. Um, That's also important because you have to have beginners and you have to have all the way up to intermediates. At that point, I don't believe that a lot of advanced quilters um, use magazine projects. I mean, they're all designing their own. So my area was about beginners to intermediates. They're looking for something to spark a spark a design. True. As far as copyright issue, it all depends on the publishing company. They will have you sign a contract. And basically it says, you know, I'm going to pay you this much. And it could have that uh, there are all copyrights and it could say anything printed on the Internet, a variety of whatever that is. Or it could say um, just North American rights. Mm-hmm. So then can then you can submit it, you know, in other parts of the world. When I was working for companies then the com- I had to, the company had to sign the contract as well as I did. And so that's why I have I have a lot of quilts this is no doubt, but a lot of them have gone on to the fabric manufacturers, but I have photographs of everything. So um when I look at some of them their looks of the fabric are you know definitely older for the time. But I tried about 2007 when I knew I was going to start a pattern line. I tried to work with magazines that only, that once the project was scheduled and published, then the copyright reverted back to me. And then I could do whatever I wanted with it, which was I knew, you know, I could make it into a pattern, I could use it in in any way. So it just is that fine line between, um, deciding what you want to do. Some of the companies, some of the fabric companies now who used to do free pattern sheets are working with specific designers. So they will give them the digital images. The designer will design the project, create the pattern herself, and then submit it to the fabric company who will then give it to the salesperson will walk in the quilting store and say all right if you like this fabric we have these patterns already done that they don't have to pay for i mean the fabric company isn't paying for but they're promoting you with their new fabric collection i would just say make sure you contact a creative director sometimes it's a marketing manager a fabric designer and when you contact
0: Like in a magazine particularly, if you ask for the the editor or the pattern editor, often you can ask to be put on their mailing list as a designer, and you will get emails that basically solicit, we're looking for... You know, this August, September issue, we want lots of right. runners or we want, you know, pre-cuts and they'll give you some guidelines and then it's easy to design with that in mind. Yeah. So switching gears just a little bit, you, you offer so many classes and you have so many skills, but one that really piques my interest is you have this little mantra, no scrap left behind. How have you used that, particularly during the pandemic and just this this idea of using the things that you have to create a quilt. Give us some idea of what that looks like.
1: So now we're, by 2007, I started designing a pattern line called Flower Box Quilts. And that's when the third company was, was formed. I started working with scraps because of people that, the customers that we were talking to, and people would come up and say, I just inherited 40 tubs of fabric and I don't know what to do with it. I'm more of the niche of, you just need a little bit to finish something. You've already got all this fabric at home. Maybe you need a different green or you need a different blue or whatever to go with what you already have. And there were customers that would come in with folders with pockets of fabric that they were looking to match. which And so that was quite interesting. So from that, just the idea of people have fabric at home. And I know on one of the chat rooms, somebody asked, well, if you see a fabric that you really like, how much should you buy? Um, that's a difficult question. Mm-hmm. Fabric is personal. It's very personal, but the consensus was anywhere from three to five yards. Well, if you bought three to five yards of everything that you liked, you would need a huge storage area. So I wanted to be the person, the vendor who was selling patterns, but little bits of fabric to fill in for people. So anyways, I started doing scrap quilts. And uh, after being at a seminar at Quilt Market that was for um, store owners, they said, you know, your customer base is getting older. It doesn't mean they're going to stop quilting. But once they are hitting retirement age, their funds are less. So they still have fabric. They still want to be creative.
0: And possibly you they're need... downsizing their house size too, their square footage.
1: Right. Or when you talk about people who are who are retired, and they're in recreational vehicles, and they still want to quilt. So it becomes taking your stash down to more uh, more of a manageable level. And so this is where um, my friend Pepper Corey, who was giving the seminar, said, you need to concentrate on scrap quilts. And so people have a stash. They've been building it. So I went home after that seminar, and I looked at my fabric, my collection with different eyes. And so I, not just all the blues, all the reds, all the whatever, but I looked at them in with a color value background. Is it a light? Is it a medium and a dark? And I've always loved scrap quilts, but when you're designing for magazines and that's your job, it's impossible in my eyes to make a scrap quilt, like the one, I'm telling you, like the one behind me, for a magazine, you know, because of the amount of cutting and measuring and everything that's needed to make the quilt. It took me until about 2012 to actually come up with a book for scrap quilts, and um, it's called Just Cut the Scrap, and it is using um, strips in with color value. You're making two basic blocks, but then I have done all the mathematical work for taking those two blocks, very simple blocks, and making them into 10 different projects. Oh, and that's so a great idea. It was it was a great idea. It still is. When we started vending, I was able to teach at shows. So then we needed classes to be able to teach. And one of the things was um, doing scrap quilts. And that's how my uh, mantra, no scrap left behind. So it had to do with my love of scraps, trying to help people use what they have and promote um, things like English paper piecing. I mean, what you can do with a two and a quarter inch square of fabric is amazing. So I have lots of different scrappy classes that I work with helping people use what they have. I've enjoyed doing... Um, handwork, which is very popular right now. And I love to combine um, English paper piecing with actual piecing and quilting. I'm not the person that's gonna do the, the. I've made a quilt with 10,000 hexagons, that's, that's not me. I wanna do smaller things and combine techniques. I have a line of patterns where I'm combining cross stitch and quilting again and applique and piecing and so using the different skills that you might like to use and co- you know coordinate them into one project and usable projects that you can finish up and start using
0: in your home right
1: right so um so right now at before the pandemic started we were on our we were at um road to california which is a fabulous show and My whole mantra, not knowing that the pandemic was coming, I really encourage people to use what they have. And so now teaching virtually or lecturing virtually, that's one of my biggest topics because you can't always go to the fabric store. You've got what you have in front of you and maybe you've ordered something, but to really use use what you have. I just gave a lecture called Just Cut the Scrap yesterday, and this was the emphasis. You have what you can work with. You can, you know, you think you can't, but you can. And say you've got a yard left of that fabric, you have no idea why you bought it 10 years ago. Don't throw it away. It looks not great as a yardage, but if you cut it down into a strip, it just becomes either a light, a medium, or a dark in a scrap quilt. And so the whole idea of the color value and sorting your fabrics um, is extremely important um, for doing scrap quilts. So I really suggest people um, look at quilts online, um, look at quilts at chose when you're able to, get an idea of what you like, what you don't like, look for where the color value is, because that's what makes a a scrap quilt sparkle.
0: Variety is what makes a scrap quilt sparkle too. Like bring all the ugly fabrics to the party. They make the whole thing shine.
1: So not only do I have piecing, one of my most favorite classes, which I'm teaching for our local modern guild here, is called crumb quilting. And that's when you're creating your own fabric yardage by sewing together all the tiny pieces that you normally might throw away, the leftover bindings, the leftover half square triangles, um, wonky shapes, whatever, and so you're—it's fun to be able to create your own yardage. And then I have a whole line of patterns that uses the idea of chrome quilting, which is—it's so much fun to do. Great way to use up those scraps that you have no idea what you're going to do with, and you. So after. Um, You do crumb quilting. You don't have much left because you need at least three quarters of an inch because you need to get a quarter of an inch around it. So instead of throwing that piece of fabric away, we use it. And then what's left after that is what goes in a a brown garbage bag next to my cutting table and extra batting pieces, etc., and then when I have a full garbage bag, which takes quite a while, and then there are people who make who make dog beds, and then they use all those little tiny scraps that you can't do anything with to stuff the dog beds. And so I am
0: I am one of those people, Michelle. I actually keep a trash can lined with a pillowcase beside my sewing machine, and I throw all my textile bits in there. Of course, I'm a quilter, so I have batting bits too. And yep. then when it gets, you know. Semi-full, I just sew that pillowcase shut and bed made. Super easy.
1: Oh, that's a great idea. That's a a fabulous idea. Do you take them to scraps? I do. Or a spoke animal? I do. That's great. We've been chatting for quite a while. You have such a wealth of stories. But I did
0: want to ask if you have just a sentence or two little nugget that you would like to leave with our listeners today that they can take into their crafting journey to encourage them.
1: I think that quilts are a personal reflection of you. I think that there isn't a uh, police in your sewing room. I tell my students that there are many ways to the same end result. Try some of the different techniques or products to see what fits for you. I think it's so so important that it should be a quilting should be a joy. It should be a stress reliever, not a stress inducer. So. You need to practice, choose fabric that you like, but also possibly throw in a zinger color that you don't normally work with because you never know that how that surprise is going to add, you know, a sparkle to your quilts.
0: I love that. Be prepared to welcome the surprises.
1: Yes. And it's okay. It's okay to unsew things if you don't like it if I I give myself, I am not um, a perfect piecer. I aim for excellence. But if something isn't going together, I will take it out twice. And if it doesn't go in the third time, that's the way it's supposed to be. Good advice.
0: I love that too. So so good. So don't
1: be so hard on yourself. Enjoy it. It's supposed to be fun.
0: Agreed. Well, that's a great note to end on.
1: Thank you, Susan. I appreciate it. And hopefully, um, you will check out flowerboxquilts.com. I'm on uh, Facebook and Instagram as Flowerbox Quilts. Come join me.
0: Thank you so very much for joining me. I sure appreciate it. And thank you for tuning in to the show. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or the app of your choice. It really helps other listeners to find the show so they can hear these stories too. Also, I'd love to hear from listeners who'd like to nominate a crafter that they know who has a story to tell. If you know such a person, email me at info at com, And don't forget to CC the nominee as well. So until next time, may your sorrows be patched and your joys be quilted.